Welcome to our latest episode of the Harvard Alumni for Education podcast. Today's episode comes from an event we hosted last year with Javier Aguayo, founder of COGEX, and Richard Lemons, a faculty member at Yale University's Education Studies program. They discussed the implications of structural inequality on learning and what changes learning organizations can undertake to make improvements on schools, from refocusing on student learning outcomes to realigning leadership goals. Richard Lemons is the executive director for the Partners of Educational Leadership, formerly known as the Connecticut Center for School Change. Richard earned a bachelor's degree in political science from North Carolina State University and his master's and doctorate in administration planning and social policy from Harvard. Javier Aguayo, a graduate of Yale and the Harvard Kennedy School, and an unlikely graduate from both institutions because he's also a dropout from Montgomery College, a community college outside of Washington, D.C. Today, Javier is founder and executive director of COGX, a research and development firm in applied cognitive science responsible for translating research in human learning into practice through programs that improve educational outcomes. The event is moderated by Susanna Brock, Director of Research and Development at COGEX. Susanna is also an adjunct professor and doctoral advisor at the Johns Hopkins School of Education. Please note that you are listening to content that was distilled from the live event and readapted for our podcast listeners, so some of the transitions might not sound particularly smooth, but we hope you will still enjoy the conversation. So Richard, I'll invite you to answer this first. What does a high quality education achieve in your mind and how can we measure this? And thank you to the Harvard uh, alumni for education for hosting this and putting on this, this program. Excited to be a part of the conversation. Uh, this, you, you probably threw the hardest question at me at the end. I, it's, a, it's a very difficult one to wrestle with, but where I come down on it is uh, it's all about creating the conditions for students to learn so that they have opportunity. And I've tried to make it kind of very simple for myself, but I, I, I'm, I'm not hyper-focused on what an individual child is learning on any given lesson, any given uh, course, any given year. I'm more worried about whether this thing called education that we're trying to bring them into or give to them prepares them for what they're gonna face the day they walk outside of the school setting. Are they gonna have the cognitive skill sets? Are they gonna have the behavioral skill sets? Are they gonna be ready, not just to survive, but to thrive? And uh, figuring out how to organize education in a way that can deliver on that for every child is something incredibly difficult. It's something we've never done in the history of public education in America. We've tended to educate a particular group of students rather well, another group of students kind of, you know, somewhat, and then a whole lot of students we have, um, pardon the expression, left behind, and we keep leaving behind systematically. And so what, what I, I think, what my colleagues, and I see a couple of them on the, on the, in the audience today, 
I think what we're trying to do is to make sure that districts are figure are very clear about that set of skills that students are going to need. And this is a very difficult proposition because the, the world is changing at an exponential pace around us. Oh, I, you know, I don't, I don't see, I don't know what that really looks like in practice. What I see in practice is practice is us trying to do way too much. Uh, American public education has a fascination with content mm -hmm. and we keep adding more content in every year a new committee gets together and decides another five standards are necessary we never call out of the set of standards and are, are and, be, and we're unable to make hard decisions about what should be taught so we just say we we present to teachers this myth that they can teach it all Mm -hmm. And it puts teachers in a, uh, it puts them on their heels and creates the conditions where their job is about covering content instead of actually creating the conditions for students to learn. And those are two very different things. And, and I think uh, we'll talk more about that over the course of the, the night. I think that's a good segue. Um, Javier, would you like to say what you think a high quality well, education achievement? Yeah. I think learning and schooling are not synonymous. Teaching uh, is not necessarily the uh, pursuit of learning. Uh, and it goes back, I think, to the root of the system and even the actual definition of the word, the etymology, you can look at educare or educere. And educare is to mold. Educere is to lead out. So educare is to teach content. Educere is to develop a learner. They're not mutually exclusive. But I think that the educational system on average has been leaning towards educare, which means what, what Richard was saying about a contest for content distribution. Of course, we're generalizing and many, many, many schools and educators don't do this, uh, but content is readily available. And I can probably find the best person in the world to explain a specific lesson to me from an academic standpoint better than I could deliver it. So I don't think content is as important as taking advantage of those years. And, and you have a student in front of you and you should define success in my opinion by the extent to which the teacher can graduate out of the learner's life and the learner never graduates from the act of learning. So the extent to which you took my curiosity and you elevated that, you took my innate competence and you built upon that, you took my creativity and it didn't go down through schooling as it typically does, it actually went up. The extent to which we can do this to a learner, I think we can then attribute success to us as a system, as educators, as leaders. And, and that's where I think we, as, as Richard said, I hope we get into the differences between teaching and learning or the importance of learning in the system. So Javier, you're on deck for the next related question, um, which uh -oh. we've already started on. You already got a head start. What do you believe is missing from our traditional model of teaching and learning? We already have a couple of <laughs> nothing, nothing at all. Um, and then why are those things missing and difficult to implement, which Richard has also alluded to a little bit, but I think it's worth taking a stab at this question again. Okay, this is a big question. So let's look at the data, right? So Columbia has a research center that looks at uh, high school graduates. In the United States, we have about 8 million kids graduating from high school, of which about two thirds will need remedial courses. So we chase the wrong thing and we don't even succeed with the wrong thing of depositing content in these empty vessels that are supposed to 
find that to be a stimulating process. So two thirds are not surprisingly missing content. And then they need remedial courses. And of the ones that need remedial courses, they aspire to get a college degree, less than one in six will actually succeed at getting a college degree. Those are facts. Let's look at why that's happening. First, science or research reveals that the way we teach is not at all conducive to learning. That's a really powerful conclusion from research, right? So teaching is disconnected from learning, goes back to the root of the problem of we're, we're depositing content and not um, teaching people to learn or, or training teachers to learn. Second, on the demand side, the learner, the way the learner thinks they learn is completely off. It is not how they actually learn. We as individuals tend to be very poor judges of when we're learning and the system confuses us because it rewards us for thinking that familiarity is synonymous with learning. And that's only true if we succeed at surface level learning, which is fleeting. So you may reward me with an A for forgetting tomorrow what I could regurgitate today. And that's a very big problem because we're perpetuating a problem, right? So when we go back to what happens, we have a mismatch between the way we teach and learn to the way we actually learn. We see every year of schooling correlated with a decrease in engagement, decrease in creativity, decrease in my desire for learning, and very often decrease in my own confidence in thinking that I'm, I'm, a, I'm an ineffective learning, learner. So why does this happen? Let's look at the system. There are two reasons. First, I think educators are not set up to succeed, and there are two reasons for that. First, the Department of Education that develops a teacher, and their goal is to actually uh, have students that flourish, a very noble goal. They go for the right reasons and we get the best people to become teachers. But the Department of Education has been completely divorced from the Department of Cognitive Science within academia, which is where we study human learning. So it's like a doctor going back to Richard's point, only saying how much food can I fit, fit, uh, fit on the plate before asking what are the ingredients in, those, uh, in, in, the, in, in, in the food? Are they nutritious? And is this the best place to even distribute that? So the teacher is being uh, prevented from understanding how humans learn. An example of this, which is that at the end of the day, the ones that succeed in a broken model are the ones that run the model. So they have very little incentive to change it. You went through a horrible lecture wherever you went to school and you were able to thrive in that. And the person that learned in the lecture, as Richard was saying before, was actually the teacher. They were the ones doing work. So Who's doing retrieval practice? The teacher. Okay. <laughs> who's using metaphors? Who's using mind maps? Who's spacing it out? Who's interleaving? All of the things that lead to leading to, to learning are done by the teacher, not by the student, right? And we do this to simplify it for them. So after all this, then the lecturer tends to be the expert. And the expert is always unconsciously competent. So they're guilty of expert bias. So they will not deconstruct this to your brain so that you can learn it. I'm actually entertaining myself and I'm enhancing my own learning. So the expert is more of an expert at the end of the day. And then we say, don't worry about it. As a teacher, you can learn more. There's always professional development. Great. That tends to be <laughs> divorced from collective efficacy, agency, choice, collaboration. Somebody else is designing what I should consume, how I can consume it. It's usually out of context. It has nothing to do with my classroom. I don't get feedback or coaching. Sometimes I get an inspiring speaker, sage on the stage, but I have very little opportunity to change how I teach. So how I was trained as a teacher in school did not teach me how students learn and the PD is not very inspiring. And then you go to leadership at the systems level 
And what we have is protectors of the status quo that are measuring academic performance. Academic performance is not learning. So conditions that generate fast academic performance actually hurt learning. That's also scientifically proven. So we have a system that's feeding itself to produce the, the opposite of learning at the expense of the illusion through academic performance. And this Robert Bjork calls the schooling conundrum, right? So the conditions that lead us to believe that you're learning in the short term through minimal effort are conditions that prevent us from learning deeply. So we forget whatever it is that we think we learned. And that's because we're rewarding performance. And we're all, all we're doing is uh, making time the God. So regardless of how different our brains are, I have four months to learn calculus. And how, how about you? You have four months too. Really? <laughs> but don't we learn at different rates? Don't I have different prior knowledge? So how exciting is it for me to be a widget in your class that has to learn the same amount of content as 30 kids that are completely different from me? So you're making it very sexy for me to be turned off, which is then going to be said that I have inattentiveness. So here come the stimulants, and we have a 500% increase in stimulants in the US. Have we really become 500 times less attentive? So I think we just, we want simple solutions and learning is not that simple. It's not just a dopamine chase like a game or, or uh, so I, I think it's a little more complex than that. Well, so we've, we've talked a lot about the, the problems with the status quo. So maybe it's a good moment to shift a little bit to um, how to make change or um, thinking about change as our, as our goal. So um, for both Richard and Javier, but I think maybe Javier can start. Obviously change often requires that leaders and educators gain new skills and areas of expertise. Um, Richard just mentioned that there's a lot of cognitive science um, that's useful for teachers that they're not familiar with. What do you think Javier is a way that you can equip teachers to make the positive changes that they need to or might want to in their classrooms? And what is some of the knowledge base that they should have? So I, um, I always say that I tend to be the least educated person in the room, but the most educated on failure. And I struggled tremendously as, as a learner. I was diagnosed as mildly retarded when I was 13, and I was told that I was not going to be able to go to college. And I dropped out of a community college as a result of that. And I spent a whole decade uh, thinking horribly about myself, feeling dumb, and getting evidence of the fact that I could not learn. So everything I've done for the last uh, in my career at COGX has been through the perspective of a student that is not achieving their potential. And when I discovered cognitive science at MIT, I felt like I was too old to pursue a doctorate degree. And I, in fact, didn't even want one. Um, I wanted to understand how we could distill the science of learning into a way that was uh, application ready, because you have to translate science and you have to realize that science is not a recipe. So it's actually harder than that. You could you generate evidence that then you have to manipulate to regenerate evidence in your own classroom. So you have to think like a scientist. So I thought that the monumental task ahead of us was to create a program through which both leaders and educators could go through in order to better understand the science of human learning. And that would be curated in collaboration with the world's top um, authorities on human learning. So we invited these people and we created what we think is a world-class curriculum on the science of learning that allows educators to master some principles from cognitive science that we think are essential across three categories. That would be cognition, emotion, and behavior. Within cognition, there's a hierarchy to how we learn. And the first filter that we have to get through as educators is the attention filter. 
And that is incredibly narrow. Less than 2% of what you say will be caught by that filter. Which 2%? Do you know how to turn it on for students and keep it on? There are ways actually to keep attention on. At a minimum, teachers should know that. And we benefit when students know that too. So attention is key. Types of attention, how to sustain it, what prevents attention. And attention is complex in the sense that it can be, we can be inattentive without having inattentiveness. I can be inattentive because I have low processing speed. So processing speed is another module that's critical. There are going to be differences in processing speed in every single classroom. So roughly one in six kids will have processing speed in the bottom sixth percentile. The way they learn, they might be impulsive because they're frustrated, just like the student in the top 99th percentile, in the top 1%, right? So processing speed is key to learning and you have to account for differences in your classroom. Then you get to working memory. Working memory is critical to encoding information, to making sense, to pulling information we already know and making sense of it and connecting the old with the new. Those three are just the foundation of processing skills. Then you get into executive function, which is can, it can be visible. Like I'm impulsive, I'm disorganized, I don't plan well. But those are behaviors that are affected by what I described before. And we know as educators that these skills of executive function can predict my success in life period, academic and professional, as well as risky behavior like crime and addiction. And we can influence them positively. So what content course is more important than one that will reduce the likelihood of me being a, a criminal or an addict and increase the likelihood of me succeeding in life? That's really important. So executive function is key and understanding it holistically. Then we get into metacognition and its role in learning. Encoding and retrieval, we know there are eight proven techniques to encode information, four strategies that are evidence-based to retrieve information. We can supervise our own learning, which is kind of like the teacher having assistance inside every single brain. Who wouldn't want that? And then on top of that, we have a motivation, we have intrinsic motivation theory, we have engagement and theory around that. And then we have to be sensitive to all of the, what I call pollutants that occur in life. These could be a trauma that's caused by abuse, by divorce, by hardship, economic. So tra trauma sensitive education is critical and we cover that aspect as well. And then you have to understand cognitive diversity. So you could have a student that's twice exceptional, not you could, you will, because about 10% of students are twice exceptional and they're usually not recognized. Dyslexics, about one in five can be dyslexic. They're equally likely to be at Yale as well as in jail because they're super gifted, but they're rarely understood. So these differences in cognition, emotion, behavior need to be understood by educators. So that's in a nutshell, what we think is, is the universe of what should be a common denominator that every single educator understands so that they can foster learning and a love for, for learning in their classroom. And I won't bore you with the learner side, but it's a subset of that. Thank you both. I think that this leads us nicely into our next question, which is more about the actual instructional practices. So we can think about whether or not content is part of that or is the content somewhat um, not irrelevant, but more about teaching the skills and the habits of mind. So question two, um, as a follow up for Richard, I know that you in your work encourage edu educators to begin with thinking about the graduate profile that they would like to have and also build an internal definition of high quality instruction. So in your experience, are there themes and what that high quality instruction looks like uh, or any shared definition? And as a 
as a follow to that, should there be a shared definition of high quality instruction? So you've you've thrown you've stacked a whole lot of questions <laughs> in there for me. I'll, I'll try to attack. I'll, I'll I'll go for the average, right? As you said in your last question, I'll try to get the middle of that, and hopefully I, I will address this. We, at partners, we try to help districts develop uh, an intentional strategy for improving learning at scale, and doing that through the classroom, through the teachers, knowing that they're not synonymous. And I, I take Javier's point um, to heart because I think that's much of the way I think about the differences between teaching and learning. I, pre-pandemic, on an average year, in an average year, I would visit uh, anywhere from 600 to 1,000 classrooms in an academic year. We help districts run uh, instructional rounds, I visit classrooms with superintendents and principals all the time in various contexts. And there are, despite the, the various forms of diversity across, uh, across almost any state and across the United States, I see some very consistent patterns that happen in classrooms. And I think it's worth talking about that as we begin to talk about what, what I might think a more ideal state of play is. I see a whole lot of compliant children, uh, perhaps too compliant, sitting passively, waiting for direction from a teacher, involved in activities more than involved in learning. Now, again, I, I, I see exceptions to this. I'm just talking about the general pattern. So I'm sure that if you're in this call, you are the exception. And I, I know there are exceptions in here, but, but they're pretty stark patterns. And these patterns that I'll keep talking about have shown up in scholarship too. It's not just the, the patterns I've seen. The, um, the level of the content is pitched below the capability of the students. We are, we are actually boring a whole lot of students on a pretty regular basis. Teachers are doing the intellectual heavy lifting in the classroom. They're the ones breaking the sweat and students are actually watching adults break the sweat up in front of the room. Uh, teachers are doing more thinking than students are doing. And, the, um, and there's a lot of emphasis on the content to the disservice of the learner as a, as a thinker and as the ultimate product we ought to be thinking about in the classroom. So when, when I visit classrooms, the things I would love to see more often, and I do see them, is students thinking. Like first and foremost, I wanna see students busy, but not just physically busy. I want to see them intellectually busy, cognitively engaged. I want them in an active state of thinking because I think learning is a byproduct of reasoning. And if we can't get students reasoning actively about complex, hard, challenging work and sustaining that reasoning over time, we're not gonna have the, the learning that we want. I wanna see teachers creating the conditions for that in multiple ways, not driving it. I want to see teachers creating the conditions for students to own their own learning, to self-regulate their own learning, to have their own goals, to be uh, self-monitoring and self-regulating their strategies for learning against the target that is that is shared. Uh, I want to see uh, I want to see some transparency among the the adults and the students in terms of what we're about here. I want, I want students to own the same vision of success that the teachers own and not have not be secretive. 
And I want to see students working over prolonged periods of time instead of these tiny little bite-sized morsels where we ask them to stay busy and then we move to the next task and then we move to the next task uh, out of fear perhaps that they'll lose control or not be able to sustain their, um, their attention. Uh, so I, I guess I'm looking for more robust thinking in classrooms at the end of the day. And I'm, and I'm asking myself on a regular basis, how would I know? I found at times as a math teacher that that comes up like almost a belief that it's too hard or only some kids are capable of it. And I worry that that's sort of underneath some of these um, some of these themes that we don't that we don't have the real expectations that the students can succeed. I think in some way that's not a hard question. I mean, the, the, the we have uh, data on this. I think that we do have evidence that suggests that we have uh, low expectations, especially for certain students in America, students of color, students of poverty, special education students, second language learners, that we, we on average, lower our expectations at a conscious and subconscious level. And that that has a profound impact on the learning process. That's well documented. I also think there's this other thing going on where it's human beings calibrating their expectations against what they think schooling is. Because I, I think that we don't go, we don't go get our degrees to become teachers and administrators and counselors and coaches to go um, stunt the learning of students. We go to do something big and powerful. The problem is, is that that learning that we're doing when we're getting these credentials that cost money and time is we're, um, we're actually reinforcing all the things that we inherited, right? We're, we're the more powerful driver of educator learning is what they've been experiencing since they were six years old. They began their apprenticeship in, in education as a student. And that has a much more powerful impact on how we think about what a classroom ought to look like, what learning ought to look like, what teaching ought to look like. And they create really powerful cultural scripts. You know, James Stigler talked about this quite a bit when he was first starting the Tim study 25 years ago, when he began to look at cultural approaches to teaching and learning across different nations. And I think that we inherit these cultural scripts that are very powerful forces that influence what a teacher thinks is appropriate, inappropriate in, in a classroom. And I think that those cultural scripts, we're calibrating against those cultural scripts. And I think the culture, the, the scripts are wrong in many ways. And we have to rewrite those scripts and create new possibilities for an entirely new play to take part in, in uh, classrooms. Thank you, Richard. Um, Javier, I think that's perfect for you to talk about. It's terrible to go after Richard. <laughs> His answers are too good for me to follow up. Uh, so I, I'll take a step back here. I think that, or I'll start where Richard ended. I think we have to question what it is we're chasing. And, and this script or this cultural issue is, is kind of the problem, right? Because we become what we rehearse and we chase what we measure. And in this case, do we have a common definition of what learning success is and how to develop that? So learning just stripped to its core. It's very simple. It's to encode, store, retrieve, or you know, we have inputs, which we process, and then we have outputs, or we organize information with the hope of being able to apply it. But then you can ask cognitive scientists, well, what's, what's learning success? And then we can have a theory of self-directed learner or 
self-regulated learner or autodidactic, and then we can start to get in lost in the nuance. So I would say that you know, the best one I've found is Robert Bjork's definition, which he calls a successful learner is a sophisticated learner that does four things. And that student understands the architecture of human memory and learning. Then they're equipped with evidence-based strategies and techniques in order to apply these to their actual learning, deep learning for mastery, not surface level learning. Then on top of that, they can monitor and control the process by which they're learning. So they have active metacognition. And then they're also aware of misconceptions and biases that can derail their whole learning process. But if we give feedback that says, here, you stink, you got a D, you think they're gonna be a better performer? No, I don't remember getting feed forward. I got a lot of feedback that reinforced the fact that I did not know. Um, so I, 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 I think your question was hard, but I think it needs to be even harder. <laughs> we need to, to, to challenge the core of what we're trying to accomplish and, and agree on what that is. Susanna, can I react to this and, and just, sure. you know, I know you're trying to get us to kind of no, talk no, to each other. So we'll, we'll start doing this. I, I appreciate your response, Javier. The, the, I think that we are, um, you know, my, my intellectual mentor was Richard Elmore. And, and Richard used to say that ours is the, the um, profession without a practice. And I think it still rings true that uh, we have lacked a kind of empirical, professional, rigorous language and knowledge base to organize the profession around. And when we've tried, it's often been about almost everything other than the learning process. And what I appreciate in your answer is that you're saying, let's go right at the student. Let's let's help empower the student to be the most important agent, agent in the learning process in the classroom and, and build the conditions around that child to do that. And I, I think that this is an exceptionally powerful. And I also think it, if, if you had an approach like this, we wouldn't chase other distractions like learning styles. So I, I, I get we all are different learners. And there are things we know about the learning process that are more consistent than they are varied. And if we actually, and if students understood those and educators understood those, then we wouldn't, you know, go spend hundreds of thousands of dollars who's, with people who've created inventories that have never been validated and running our students through that to know whether they're kinesthetic or visual. And, and I think that those things are superficial elements. They might be, there might be some truth in them, but they're superficial in relationship to these core elements about how the brain functions in the learning process. And can we get students to understand it and the adults are trying to create the conditions for them to learn. I, I, I think it's key to, to having us organize our entire profession around what's most important. We wouldn't ask doctors to organize their profession around what's getting served in the dining hall of the hospital. No, we'd say heart surgeon, what's the practice and of how the heart functions? And then you build around that, you start with that essential element at the core. And I, I really appreciate you trying to bring us back to how does learning happen in the child? And can we, can we, uh, can we position that knowledge, not just in the adult, but in the child uh, their cells? At the same time, um, 
I, I think that we spend more time doing schooling than we do doing learning. But we're, but it's not because there are adults who don't care about kids, who don't all want kids to succeed. It's because they don't have a vision of another way to do it. They, we are asking people who were socialized by the institution, they're now being asked to transform. That is a very complicated endeavor. And, it, and we're basically asking people to, to shake out their old mental models about what classrooms look like, what schools can look like, what the roles of adults are, what the roles of young people are, what learning looks like. And we're asking people to do that without agreement in the field. There's agreement in scholarship without agreement in the field about what's the knowledge base we should organize the entire profession around. So these ideas that Javier is talking about that are central and we know about how the learning process, they're not well understood by the average educator in the field. Richard just mentioned that there's a lot of cognitive science um, that's useful for teachers that they're not familiar with. So I thought that the monumental task ahead of us was to create a program through which both leaders and educators could go through in order to better understand the science of human learning. And that would be curated in collaboration with the world's top um, authorities on human learning. So we invited these people and we created what we think is a world-class curriculum on the science of learning that allows educators to master some principles from cognitive science that we think are essential. How do we, how do we move this? agenda. So I was jotting down some thoughts as, as uh, Javier was talking, kind of my mind was running his ideas through my own Quasinart, figuring out what worked and, and what doesn't. And I, and I find myself resonating with it. I, I want to go back to this idea of we have to figure out how to professionalize this profession. We have to, we have to fundamentally restructure, reshape, reculture how we um, think of the educators in this field. And I think that there's, there are examples from other fields, medicine being one of them. The field of medicine was dramatically different 100 years ago. Uh, it looks like education looks now. And there's a lesson to be, um, that is well-documented on how the medical field gets transformed and how we begin to think about the profession in different ways. We begin to lean into the knowledge base that we begin to think is essential around health and wellness and medicine. I also think we need to have an honest conversation about um, structural racism in America because some of the shifts that we're asking schools to do are gonna be easier to do in some schools than others because some schools are facing much, much larger challenges because concentrated poverty and they're serving students who are facing uh, disproportionate degrees of the wrong side of race, structural racism in America. And we have to figure out how to wrestle with this because I, I can just look in any given state, there are certain districts that have a degree of capacity to take on some of these issues and there's some that are just spinning. They're just spinning. And leadership turns over and strategies every two or three years turn over and they can't stick with them. So they sign up for this. They go in the direction Javier suggested. And a year and a half later, they're on to some other thing that's, that's distracting them. And part of that is that we have allowed this precious resource of public education to get distributed across a society that has some fundamental inequities in ways that echo the inequities. 
And uh, I, I think we, it, it's not an, it, we don't have to do that first. We can start with what good learning looks like, but we also need to have an honest conversation because we just say, hey, if we just get schools to adopt this. Richard, to, to some of the, the points you listed, um, I think those are all fantastic ideas. How in your work have you helped organizations make change when they are strapped for time, for money, for attention? How can, how can we help move change forward when those are all so limited? Great question. There are no easy answers. My colleagues are on would echo this, um, but there's some, there's some hunches we have. One, it's easier to pursue a destination when everyone knows what that destination is. So get clear about the outcomes you're trying to produce for students. Get really clear, not in abstract general ways, not in vague portrait of the graduates, like really dig in and ask yourself, what would learning look like if we were to knock it out of the park? What would the outcomes of that learning look like? How would we know? And then start chasing that. So you gotta get a vision and it can't just be an abstract vision. It really has to relate to the teaching and learning enterprise. Get the leadership to start aligning everything towards that outcome. Systems, structures, professional learning capacity. We, we have a profession that society has asked to do everything under the sun. Our schools feed students, provide all kinds of social service. We are the, we are the photographer for all of America's children twice a year because somehow this got pinned on schools. And we shut down schools for a couple of days and just take photos of kids. Can I just add a comment to that? I, I, I have heard many leaders say, we, we, returning to the status quo is not an option, but I've never heard leaders say the wrong thing about what they're trying to accomplish. It's just the outcomes tend to be decoupled from the strategy that we claim to want to pursue. Um, I, I do hope that this inflection point changes the system for good. And prior to, to this intervention, you guys had asked, how can we help organizations make change when they have limited capacity, right? Or how can we foster this? So to, to be a little bit more positive, no gloom and doom as we're getting close to the end, as Richard was saying, what we, we find that it's hard to change uh, people that are most resistant to change. So like every early adopter is key. You're listening to the Harvard Alumni for Education podcast. Thank you for joining us today.